Awkward family. It's another week, another episode, and we're back. Season three is in full throttle, and uh, the second episode is dropping, and this is going to be an incredible an incredible episode. I uh, just really enjoyed getting to know this fine gentleman. We uh, had some really good time just sitting out at his place right outside of Post, Texas, in the middle of nowhere, sitting in an old cabin on the front porch and getting to do this podcast. It was quite a delight for me. It soothed my soul for sure. Uh, this week is Nathan Dahlstrom. He is an author. He is a poet. He is a philosopher of sorts. And uh, we're going to get to talk about a lot of his story, uh, but specifically his books, the Wilder Good series. And if you are a parent with a young reader who is outdoorsy, Uh, or indoorsy, it doesn't really matter. Give the Wilder Good books a read. They are real world, a lot of just, anyway, it's just really good stuff. Um, And Nathan does a great job of weaving a story together. And you just fall in love with Wilder. That's what you do. So um, once again, appreciate you guys tuning in, the feedback of season three up and going, you guys piping in and social media and through the different platforms uh, have been tremendous just hearing everybody's glad that the awkward podcast is back so without further ado let's get into it hey Nathan Dahlstrom welcome it's gonna get start it you good all right so nathan thank you for doing this and we are sitting at his place rural as you can get out in the middle of nowhere at his cabin that they have built and uh, it looks like a turn of the century homestead is what it looks like there's an outhouse behind it um i guess all reclaimed wood was here yeah you just gave me a huge compliment a turn of the century uh, pioneer place. Yeah, I, it, so, it looks yes. like some people, some people that I, I knew growing up's yeah. places. So. It, the, the, the idea, you know, a lot of places you see come to the country and they bring in the bulldozer and level everything. And I wanted a place that looked like it had been there for 100 years. And so that's what we built. It's not really good for wildfires because if you have brush and everything around your place, yeah, it's it, it's better to bulldoze everything for 200 yards in West Texas, but uh, you know, hopefully it'll survive. This place has burned once, but it was before this cabin was here uh, seven years ago. But so, did you just find old barn wood? Is that what? Well, this wood is old bleacher wood. Okay. So so now everybody is so rich; they have aluminum bleachers, but all the old wood bleachers turn into really nice wood after about 15, 20 years. And in, in West Texas, things really don't rot. Right. So, you know, this is yellow pine, two by tens, and it should last a long time. And, Forever. Uh, it, you know, it, it already spent 20 years on bleachers. So anyway, we built it all as a family, and it was a pretty special thing. It's a cool place, no doubt. So Nathan Dahlstrom, where were you born? Roswell, New Mexico. Roswell. Which 
You came in with the alien ships. I came in with the alien ships before the alien ships were cool. Yeah. Uh, but I call that West West Texas because <laughs> because one of those side counties over there on the on the yes, it was Roosevelt County, but you know all of that was Texas in the Republic. Yeah, everything to the Pecos River. So, and even today, like New Mexico was one way politically as a whole, but Eastern New Mexico, West West Texas is still, you know, very staunchly conservative, and yeah. so that's where that's where. Where I was raised, Lubbock was our big town, ninety miles away, and so we came to Lubbock for youth group and go to Sam's and go to the you know the first Walmart that came to the to the High Plains. Uh, so those people are, you know, living in a, s- a semi-arid area where you have really really good rain one year, thirty inches, and then you have six inches the next year. Right. You know, whereas you get to Abilene, you know, and you get about thirty inches more consistently. But this semi arid strip, the Yano Estacado is where I've always lived and uh it's in my blood. Got it. So uh graduated from what high school? From Floyd, New Mexico. Got it. With the same twelve kids I started kindergarten with, more or less. Little bitty tiny school. <laughs> yeah. It's a great place. And then went on to college? I went to college for one year. to. I went to Lubbock, to Lubbock Christian. And I was uh, supremely unready for the college experience and had a 1.4 GPA and received a letter that invited me not to come back. <laughs> <laughs> so I was... I, I received was, that same letter my you, freshman okay, year. Okay, well, yeah, thank yeah. you. You know, there's a very distinguished class of creative people that didn't jive with college. Uh, so, you know, there are not many people that went on to be, I don't know, lifetime creative that didn't have a hard time in college. So anyway, so I I did that, and I there's an old Mac Davis song, I Thought Happiness Was Lubbock, Texas, in my review. That's Mary. right. And that certainly was how I felt. And so I moved to Montana, and I I started writing letters to Montana and just said, I'll do anything anywhere. I wanted to work on a ranch, but I said, I'll do anything for anybody. And the first job I got was as a room cleaner, a maid in West Yellowstone, Montana. So uh, West Yellowstone is the west entrance to Big Yellowstone Park. So I I moved there on January 30th, and the night they dropped me off, it was minus 50 below zero. And so that was a shock. I had, Holy moly. I had two bags and it was negative 50. And uh, the next day I started cleaning rooms. I had a big cowboy hat and dirty coveralls. And I was it was an outdoor motel, if you can believe it. So I was pushing a cart along the little on the, on the little gangplank and I was cleaning rooms. So, But it, How was, do you it keep was worth it. Pipes from breaking in an outdoor. Hotel. I don't know, but but what but what did happen room to room? So I had my little cart, little maid cart, and uh, I would push that little cart. And on a cart, you have about four different squeeze bottle solutions. You've got you've got glass cleaner, toilet cleaner, and something else. But they would freeze in the thirty seconds, pushing it out of the room down the little gangplank to the next room. And so when I went into a room, I'd have to turn on the hot water and run those bottles <laughs> under the hot water and thaw them out, and then I could commence cleaning up after people. So. so you just get thrown straight into cleaning rooms. Yeah. And it's weather you've never even experienced before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what you get. So from. what took you, okay, so what took you up there? I just, I knew, well, you know, I, 
you can imagine if you get kicked out of college and have a 1.4, it's probably because you were doing some drinking of yellow bellies and staying up too late. And so I just, I, I had a great group of friends and guys I loved, but I knew in that environment, I was never going to be able to walk away from those friends. And, you know, those were houses and friendships that, you know, you would just drink every night, you know, cheap beer. And I knew that wasn't the man I wanted to be. Uh, I experienced that and it was bad. And I, I just, I wasn't strong enough man to walk away from it in my hometown, hmm. but I knew I had a different destiny. And so I said, I've just got to get out of here. And so I wanted to, I wanted to cowboy and see Montana. And so I just said, I'll do whatever it takes to leave. And, uh, I bought a $40 bus ticket and had my little job and it was, and you rode the bus up there. I rode the bus. Up That's there. cowboy in itself. Just <laughs> it was, being able to ride a bus all the way to Montana. I had I had two bags, and it was like going into another world, because we had traveled a lot as a kid. Uh, my dad took us places, but I hadn't been to Yellowstone in wintertime in in the dead of winter. So it was a shock pulling into town, and there's buffalo, and there's there's no streets, just white snow and snowmobiles everywhere, and so it was it it, it was great. I I cleaned rooms for about for about a month. Then I got a job as a bus boy for the rest of winter for about two months. And then I got a job on a ranch. And so whenever it became spring. And so it was the best thing I ever did. And of course, the second best thing I ever did was I found the little church of Christ up there. There was a tiny church of Christ in West Yellowstone, Montana. And like good Christian people do, they took me in and said, you're dumb as you can be, but uh, we're going to love you. And they loved me, and they uh, just adopted me. And so I spent two years there working on ranches, and then I was a snowmobile guide in the wintertime and just fly fishing and cowboying and uh, going all around the park and hanging out with, with a specific old man named Gail Loomis who hmm. really took me in, he and his wife, Terry Loomis. And uh, they took me in, and uh, – he well he he shows up in my books you know yeah. he's 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 a part of of the book series the first and third book most specifically but yeah it was the best thing that I I did and you know a lot of times when you don't know <clears throat> what you need to do it's kind of like animals that they seek out a salt lick <clears throat> an animal doesn't say I need to go lick some salt but they show up at the salt lick every now and then yeah. and. I showed up at the Salt Lake, and it was West Yellowstone, Montana, and it sure helped me. Mm. So how long were you there? I was there for two years, and the, the, the reason I left is when I was there, <clears throat> this is the whetstone kind of origin story, is I, I, I started teaching Bible class at that little church, and there was like, you know, three little kids on Sunday morning, and there was a little kid there that I got really close to, and uh, he was six years old or something, and he... Uh, I, I, I would go to his house. He was living with his grandparents. He didn't have a good, a good home life. And over the six or seven months I was teaching that class and kind of mentoring this kid and just, just being a friend to him, it came out that his uncle had been sexually abusing him. And uh, I remember where I was sitting whenever they told me that, and they told him the, the specifics. And at 19 years old, I'd never, you know, I, I grew up next to a children's home. You know, when you say the word sex abuse, I don't know. I didn't have any idea really what that meant. I was, right. had had a very good life. And so they told me this kid had been, you know, viciously sexually abused by his uncle uh, for, for years. 
And I just saw, you know, I literally, I, you know, and this is a moment that I can go back to in a heartbeat. I saw the face of Satan, uh, that, that Satan was a mocker, you know, and that he, he tore down and he deceived everything. And, and in that horrifying moment of, of that vision, I felt like God also showed up and said, that's what I want you to do the rest of your life is work, mm. with, is work with kids like him. And so I was living the ideal I had a pickup, which, you know, what else do you need besides a four-wheel drive pickup? And I had horses, and and I had the mountains, and I had Yellowstone Park, but I felt like God said, you need to start a boys' ranch. And so I made plans to finish my education, and so I left my little two-year uh, dream world in Montana uh, based on that interaction. Wow. So— just another big pivot, a pivot in your life that just shifted. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a trajectory. It, it, you know, it wasn't anything I was looking for, and that's why I can look back with some confidence and say, you know, that was God speaking to me. I mean, that was a, that was an authentic Holy Spirit interaction that I wasn't seeking, and He said, "I need you to do this. I want you to do this, or, or at least I want you to attempt this." Yeah, you know, uh, who knows how we become successful in things, but I felt. That's all I could do. So I made plans. My dad's old professor was, uh, he he was in Detroit at that time at a small Christian school, Rochester College. And he was a guy I had grown up with, Stephen Eckstein, and he was teaching up there. He was teaching Greek. And because I was a Church of Christ kid, Greek was kind of like the big machine gun that you could pull out and explode people with when you're fighting about the Bible. And whoever knew the most Greek kind of got to win all the fights. Yeah. And that was... That was a big piece of my heritage, and at that time, I wanted to, you know, I, I had to get a bachelor's degree and probably a master's degree to get ready to start a boys' ranch, but I also wanted to know the Bible and really understand, you know, who Jesus was and what, what, what was the point of the Bible and all these things. So I moved, I drove, you know, all the way across those northern states and uh, moved to Detroit. I moved in with my aunt and uncle and went back to college. So... But this is a big shift. So you went to what was that? What was that school? Rochester College. Rochester College. So you went there, finished out, and got a master's, or just well, I got a bachelor's degree there. I got twenty-one credits in Greek. It took all those credits under Steve Eckstein. But I went to my aunt and uncle's old church, and like the second time I was there, my wife walked in, and so ah, uh, the next shift. And so, so that was a <laughs> big surprise. I was I was interested in girls, but I wasn't seeking a wife. And then this this sweet little girl walked in who had grown up there, going to church with my cousins. And we had visited there over the years. I didn't know her family, but her her granddad had been an elder there. And uh, she walked in, and I said, "Wow, well, that's the one I want." And mm. luckily, she was young enough, and I was able to deceive her <laughs> into. Into saying yes. That's not true. And, and well, she said yes, and we signed the paper, and I, I've got it. And so she's hooked in. But it was it, it was it was really good. I lived there with my aunt and uncle for a year, and then we got married and had an apartment. And I did a bachelor's degree, and she did a degree, and then uh, just kind of kept moving. So from there, where'd you go? Uh, from there, the next step was to get practical experience at a boys' ranch. I mean, we were still laser beam focused to we're going to start Whetstone Boys Ranch, but you can't start Whetstone Boys Ranch with 
at age 23 with zero dollars. Did you already know the name? Yeah. At that point? Yeah. Really? Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, which a lot of men's ministries use, but it's, you know, it's a great verse, you know, that you need men to sharpen men. And so whetstone seemed like a, the right name for it. And so, uh, we, we looked, we, we've been talking to Boys Ranches all over the country. There's a big network, of course, of Church of Christ Children's Homes, but, you know, also other places. But the one we really liked, and I never wanted to live in New York, was on Long Island, New York. And so uh, we started talking to them, the Hill family, Jerry and Fern Hill, who were just the best people in the world. And uh, we did an internship out there. And you, Long Island, if you, you've ever been there, it's, you think of, all of New York is New York, Manhattan. But yeah. Of course, Long Island is where there's sod farms and white-tailed deer and all kinds of beautiful things. And so, we moved out there to that boys' ranch and just started working, and it was it was great. It was, uh, and you know, so many pieces of my life were not things I ever expected. And of course, that's everybody's story. That's not unique. But <clears throat> I never expected to be in New York. But yeah, when when I found out that. Timothy Hill was on Long Island. I'm like, what? Is there a different Long Island? Because Long Island is, I mean, I, in my head, and this is my simple Texas brain, could not comprehend that Long Island had anything that would be any ranch of any sort yeah. or anything like that until I was fully explained the whole situation. Yeah, you're right to think that. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, Manhattan, of course, you know, the five boroughs get all the attention, but there's all kinds of outdoors, you know, conservative agricultural people. Yeah. And Long Island is certainly full of that. And and, and the, that boys ranch, Jerry and Fern Hill, that was a Tennessee boy and an Oklahoma girl. Hmm. So they had, you know, they had very Western sensibilities and, uh, and uh, loved farm and agriculture. And of course, you know, the main point, was was working with kids and that's where god planted them 40 years before and so so we followed them up there and we had a great time and we had two beautiful little girls up there and uh that was you know is it still going along oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it's rock and roll and the, the executive director there thaddeus hill thud uh he was here on this porch three weeks ago really so, yeah they're they're rocking and rolling and when was the last time you were up there well, I, I wasn't. I was up there twelve years ago. Okay, so it's been a while since yeah. you've. It's been a while, uh, but we had a we had a wonderful four years. We moved there uh, three weeks after nine eleven, so we were buying a house, and we were in Whoa. contract buying this house on Long Island. And our attorney calls us and said, "I guess you watched the news, but my office went up in smoke, but I wasn't in it." He's like, "You still coming?" And we said, yeah, we're still coming. So we stuffed all our stuff and we had to go way north because I had I had guns and stuff. And that time, you know, guns and terrorists and everything and, yeah. and even rental trucks, of course, were a huge thing. And so but that's where we were moving. So we moved into Long Island, which you drive around Manhattan and the whole thing was just this big old black trail of smoke, if you remember. Uh, but we were, you know, we were 60 miles away from that, 70 miles away. But anyway, uh it was interesting, but it was real good. So four years at, at Hill. Yeah. And then... And, and that, of course, that's where I met a, a good Texas country boyfriend. You know, <laughs> well, a, a, a few of them, you know. I've met several good Texas uh, buddies up there, Ty Lewis and Matt Foster. And then, of course, Will Hale were all 
came into, you know, my close friend group all through the yeah. ranch up there and they were all guys with Texas roots. So that was interesting. And I killed the biggest deer I've ever killed on Long Island. A, a big white tail with my bow. Just, Will Hell was there that that morning. I think I've even heard that story. And let that just be, you know, I'm, it may be the the tag of this podcast: the biggest deer <laughs> killed in Long Island. Yeah, just doesn't it doesn't compute in my yeah in my simple it, Texas brain. It still doesn't really in mine. But so four years there, and then another move, another shift. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I'd been away for, for from home for ten years at that point. And I had these two little girls, and we wanted to have some more, and we wanted to start Whetstone. So, I, you know, I had a degree. <clears throat> I had four years at a boys' ranch. And so, and in that time, two other really close friends had been really, you know, spoken to by God to say, we want you to start Whetstone as well and team up with Nate. And so Jeremy Thompson and Brandon Maxwell, so I had, you know, two really good partners that said, we want to give our entire life to this as well, which was really Nothing I ever asked them or, or right. auditioned for, but they said, we want to do this with you. This is what we think our purpose is. And so we said, well, let's, let's all, they were in Denver, Colorado at that point working at a, at a boys ranch facility. And so I moved home uh, and we were going to start fundraising and start a 501c3 and start down the next steps. We knew we weren't ready for somebody to give us millions of dollars to start a boys ranch yet, but we were we were getting experience and we felt like God was saying, keep moving forward. And so we moved home and uh, moved back here to Lubbock where my parents live and my sisters lived. And uh, and of course, when you're raising kids, Lubbock, Texas is a is a wonderful place to raise kids. And so uh, not that Long Island wasn't. We just that was going to be a short time thing. Yeah. And we had a great four years there. We were ready to come home and, and get back to Texas and move forward with Whetstone. So you come back here for a little bit before going to try to start Whetstone or were you just in the ground? Well, between 2005 and 2011, we were, we, we got our 501 C3 and okay. we, start, we started raising money. So we were doing fundraisers and we were, we were meeting constantly. I got a master's degree. I became a director at a boys ranch here. And so I was still getting experience that whole time. Okay. And, getting a master's degree and raising money and formalizing everything. And so, uh, we had, we had two more kids in that time and, uh, Jeremy and Brandon both got married and, uh, we were ready to, to do something in, in that process of investigating and learning and raising money. We really felt like Missouri was the place to go Southern Missouri. And so, uh, we were traveling to Missouri a couple of times a year and fundraising and setting things up and talking to people and searching ranches and everything. And so, we uh, we just kept living life and uh, getting ready and, you know, waiting on God, but gathering our experience the whole time. So what what kind of led y'all to Missouri instead of doing a, like a Texas something? Yeah. As, just from... This doesn't mean this is the truth. This is just what happened to... <laughs> this is just what happened to us. Yeah. Is a lot of places in Texas had a boys ranch. Right. Well, that's what you I was going to say. Is it, it, it just because it was a uh, the, there's always a need, you know, unfortunately, there's always people that are abusing kids and neglecting kids. And of course, there's always kids that are having really tough childhoods that need mentoring and love. But we just saw a lot of that here in Texas. And when we looked at 
What we wanted to have was a cattle ranch that we could raise a meaningful level of cattle. And in Texas, cattle haven't been economically viable outside of as a as a business proposition. Like in Texas, you can't buy a ranch unless you know you have that capital somewhere else. Right. Like you start a business with fifty thousand bucks, well, you've got to be making some money pretty soon. Well, cattle, you know, especially in West Texas, you need. 25, 30, 40 acres for one mama cow and you get one calf a year. So anyway, we were looking at those things and just the need and and we went, all of our research took us to the Ozarks that you could still buy ranch land Hmm. with a lot of grass. You could raise a mama cow in about three acres and uh, there wasn't an existing facility in that area. And we we had open doors from all the Missouri people. We we liked the Missouri people. They were good good country folks, uh, really healthy Christian community. And so uh, we started looking real serious in Missouri, probably, I don't know, in 2007 or eight or nine and looked at many, many, many ranches. So this is, this kind of gets into the weeds of all of it, but when you're starting that kind of the scouting part of it, are you looking for like churches to help support that? Are you looking for that? Well, are you looking at, the Church of Christ Children's Home that started in the 50s and 60s and 70s was primarily an outreach of the church. And so most of those children's homes existed because lot all the little churches of Christ said, this is our job to keep these places going yeah. and sent donations for many, many years. And that still exists. Uh, that wasn't necessarily what we targeted. Uh, you know, you talk about getting into the weeds. Uh to be a Church of Christ children's home and do that, you need to be really on the level with all the churches of Christ's gotcha. elderships yeah. and all those things. And all of us were uh, exuberantly Christian, uh, but we didn't perhaps— Check all the boxes of— Maybe check all those boxes, yeah. and yeah. that was something maybe in our youth we weren't we weren't ready to go down that road. And so— Maybe we should have, but primarily it was individual donors that. Yeah, I just didn't know if that if that to. kind of helped guided you to a place where hey, there's about six churches in this. Yeah, lo- it wasn't no, that. No, okay. and, and there's wonderful churches all over Missouri and you know all over Colorado and Texas. And I'm sure some support or whatever, but that it was that was not the priority. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. Gotcha. Yeah, we had to you know find all the people that that we had worked with in the past that trusted us and and obviously family. You know, when anybody starts a business, uh, the first people you have to convert is some family members. Yep. And so those people get behind you and, and you know, it just kind of builds one dollar to two dollars to a hundred bucks to a thousand bucks and eventually you think, well, it's it's kinda time we either do this or not. And so we just kept making all those little steps and we we had a beautiful verse that helped us in all those years. Uh Ecclesiastes four twelve, I believe, but uh, a cord of three braided, a three braided cord is not quickly broken, you know. And so having a partnership, a whole lot of ministries, and we've talked about ministry today, a whole lot of them can be run by that one big magnanimous personality. Mm-hmm. And that's not wrong. Uh, the Bible has a lot of big magnanimous personalities. Our vision was to let's all three of us be three cords and help each other and so if somebody gets taken out, somebody has to be brought in, we're ready for that. This yeah. isn't, you know, Nathan's ministry. This isn't mm-hmm. Brandon's ministry. This isn't Jeremy's ministry. This is some guys who feel like God asked us to do this, and we're going to do the best we can as long as we can. Uh, so 
I don't know. That, that gave us a lot of peace, I think. Uh, and we're all still friends today, which is probably unique. That is, especially to do some hairy business things, yeah. and, you know, where it's... Being in business, you know, with, with people is a lot different than going hunting with them. You know, hunting with them is a big, is a big piece of staying friends in, in business. But, you know, Jeremy and Brandon were sitting with me on this porch six months ago. Uh, but with that, that was a real blessing that we had a partnership that, that made us all stronger yeah. as one and then individual units. So, and I think having that goal of ministry definitely solidifies a lot of, it takes the business thing out of it. So it, our purpose is Christ yeah, first and foremost. And yeah. a lot of the other things just kind of, mm-hmm. the idiosyncrasies kind of wash away real quick. When, yeah. When you, when, when you're working with hurting kids, they tend to grab all your attention. You know, you, you, you can still get your feelings hurt and you can still have your individual dramas, I guess, but if you know you're not just turning out widgets, you're having yeah. to be pretty available to to those kids and in making sure they're getting taken care of and having their needs met. And so it's a hard job, but it certainly takes all the focus off you and your personality and your needs. I mean, it's it's not easy to do, uh, and that's why a lot of people, you know, you can't do it forever, or you have to switch roles or do different things. It's it's exhausting to work with. Uh, you know, just to work in ministry, you know, with hurting people, uh, you've got to be really there for it. And if you're not, you're probably not doing much good for those people. You're supposed to be helping. So when did you, when did breaking ground on Whetstone happen? Well, that was, that ranch was signed, I think, June of, June or July of 2011. And so at that same time, my life took a, took a, a big U-turn. And so I, it, I wasn't at, I knew at that time I wasn't going to be available uh, to be at a boy's ranch. You need to be giving people basically 24 seven spiritual, mm-hmm. physical, emotional support and love and mentoring. And I knew that's something I wasn't going to be able to do. My family had a tragedy and I knew I had to, or my new call was to not work with other people's kids, but to work with my family, mm-hmm. you know, to work with my kids and my wife and my family. And so that became Whetstone. My heart will always be with Whetstone and, and still is with Whetstone, but my my ministry became my family 100%. And so that was a very clear transition uh, there in 2011. So during that, you started writing a little bit. Too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to the big point of, of yeah. our conversation. I I grew up on a place like this out in the middle of nowhere. We were 30 miles from the big town. And uh, my mom would take us to the library and we would stack as many books as we could hold because we weren't going to be coming back for about a month. And we'd, we'd walk home with <clears throat> 30 to 40 books a piece. And so... Uh, I had a video game system out there, the first Atari, for about a week, and I played a game called Pitfall Harry. Yeah. And I looked up after those five days, and I said, I've got guns and a horse and hundreds of acres to roam in. Why am I sitting in here doing this? And so I say all that to say I grew up very isolated, and I had books, and I had the outdoors. You know, those were the two things. And so when I, I, I always felt like, that I was going to write books. I, 
books were always important to me. In the Church of Christ, we take the Bible really, really serious. If you're walking into church and you see a family and not everybody's carrying a Bible, then we kind of maybe look at them a little funny when I was growing up. <laughs> like, you need to be bringing your own Bible in here. What's wrong with you? I, I, actually, my dad, he started using his iPhone, and I looked at him like, what's wrong with you <laughs> the other day? You need to have your text here. The iPhone's not a Bible. Anyway, uh, so so the written word and books were always very important to me, and so I, I always wanted to write. And in in that time we were here in Texas, I'd made friends with a really well-known Texas writer, John Erickson, who writes the Hank the Cowdog books, and we became fast friends. He, so how did y'all even meet? How did that even? He was doing a fundraiser at at the school where my dad worked. He was the superintendent of Lubbock Christian Schools and their big fundraiser, John came to speak and make everybody laugh. Yeah. And so I, I, I just hung out with him that day and he's, he's an intellectual. He's a, he's a for real legit cowboy. Uh, he loves the Lord, been married to his wife for 55 years and we just, we just hit it off. And so I started going up to his ranch and working cattle and we'd talk about, Plato and Aristotle and uh, the cosmos and the universe and the Greek text and the best way to rope a calf and uh, the drought and the scissor tail flycatchers and when they come back from Mexico. And so we just we just had a had a friendship that hit it off. And so I I had always wanted to write. And so in the course of that friendship, I said something to John like, yeah, I've always wanted to write. And he said, oh, that's nice. You know, completely blew me off. Because here's a guy that's been yeah. a professional for 50 years, and right. everybody wants to write. Everybody wants to write a book. Everybody thinks they're a little genius. And so at some point, I said, well, I'll show him. And I typed up a little piece that I thought was brilliant and uh, sent it to him. And I expected him to say that, you know, in six months, you've you've done what I hadn't done in 50 years. You're the next Ernest Hemingway. Uh, bow down and anoint me. And shockingly, that's not what he said. He, he said, and I, I tell this story a lot, but he, he said, your story was good for the first couple of sentences. Then you took it out to the pasture and shot it between the eyes. And so, <laughs> I, and so I said, well, that's my start. Uh, because it, to be creative, you're obviously going to be terrible whatever craft you choose. You're not going to be good at it. And to think you're good at it is arrogant. Uh to get good at something, it takes years and years and lots of hard work. Uh, nobody rolls out of bed good at anything. And so once you start working with creative people, if they're, you know, playing the guitar or writing or whatever it is they're doing, it's because they worked really hard for a long time and they honed their craft. A carpenter doesn't make it his best table, his first table. You know, he's working his whole life and then maybe he makes some masterpiece. And so... John gave me that necessary piece of feedback that you're not a little genius, and if you want to be a writer, then you need to actually start working at it and not just walk around like a little peacock telling people you're going to be a writer someday. And so, you know, that was pretty interesting. That was, that was pretty good feedback. And so you can either reject that advice and say, well, you're like my fifth grade teacher. You don't respect my genius. Or you say, maybe you're right. Maybe because you've been writing for 50 years, I should listen to you. And so I... I started listening to him and he said, you've got to, you know, you got to treat writing like a job. You're not getting paid for it, but you've got to do it at a certain place at a certain time every single day. Mm. And when you start doing that, then you can come talk to me about you want to be a writer. So all, 
all that was happening in those years as well. And so I said, okay, I'm going to start writing. I, I really have a passion for this. And so at the same time, I was raising these little kids. And I took these little kids to Barnes & Noble and to the bookstores. And I said, kids, I love books. I want you to love books too. And so when you go to buy books, you see books about being wimpy, about being a brat, about being whiny. And so a lot of the books that have been published in the last 15 years, and of course now it's 10 million times worse right. in the last five years what's happened. But even 15 years ago, I wasn't happy with, any, with the literature that was being written for my kids. Now, of course, there were the classics, and I was raising them on the classics, but uh, what was being written, uh, you had to really search, and there were probably really bad messages embedded in all those books. And so I said, well, I've got to, I can do better than this. I want my kids to not be wimpy. I want them to be courageous. Uh, I want them not to be bratty. I want people to love them. And so uh, I said, well, I'll see if I can get down some of that imprint. And then just writing about agriculture and the outdoors. Yeah. You know, the, the publishing world really revolves around New York City, the, the big five publishers. And, of course, there's wonderful publishers in lots of many, many places. But that world can be pretty insulated. Mm. And when there's a trend going one way, that trend is, is not towards agriculture and kids going hunting with their granddad. You know, when I queried, when I first queried Wilder Good, uh, that first book is about Wilder Good going on an elk hunt with this old man in his church. And I had numerous agents and publishers in New York say, I would never be associated with a book with a kid and a gun that shoots animals, you know. And so you can say, well, fine, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion. So what? But the flip side is those were most of the gatekeepers uh, to that world. And so uh, it wasn't easy to pursue that vision. And there was a reason all the books in Barnes & Noble didn't have anything to do with my childhood or the childhood of millions of kids across this country right. that did grow up hunting with their granddad and going fishing and castrating cows and being told to be tough and being paddled when they acted like brat, acted like brats. And so... I wanted to write books that main, held up those values, not just the ones that were being momentarily represented by by that establishment. So when you started, the, did you, I guess you pitched that to some New York folks? and Yeah, lots went of that, people. Went down that road too. So did, was there any further guidance from, I've, I've already forgot his name. From John? Yeah. yeah. Well, the guidance, how to do that. The guidance John has given me over the years, like he, he, he doesn't read fiction. Uh, he figured out <clears throat> when he was young, and a lot of writers do this, you read a great book, and if you're sensitive and you love art and you love beauty, you read some great manuscript, and the first thing you do is, I want to go write just like that. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's very easy when you're first becoming a creative professional to, to find the people that really inspired you and basically just do what they do. And that's what, that's what most people do whenever they start. Uh, and so he figured that out about himself very young. And so he doesn't read anybody's fiction. He doesn't edit my work. Uh, now he writes fiction. He's written 76 Hank the Cowdog books, but he's very protective of, of, of what he did there. He's afraid if he reads other fiction, he'll start even now doing what they do as opposed mm. to sticking to this kind of beautiful little gift as he describes it, of Hank the Cowdog. But he gave me hours and hours and hours of dialogue about literature, 
about about publishers, about you know just how to see the world. Uh, and so that was incredibly valuable to have a master, to be able to sit at their feet and really yeah serve an apprenticeship. Uh, cowboying, you know, you know this. You, you you don't learn cowboying by reading a book. Right. You have to find someone who does it, and you go and watch them. And then you observe really carefully, and then you go try it and fail. Then you keep observing, and you ask a few questions, maybe. But you have to observe and watch and observe and watch. And then this magical thing that's happened for thousands of years, you have a master, begins to trickle down some knowledge to this apprentice, uh, which is different in a lot of ways from, like, the college experience. But really, for thousands of years, globally, how people learn things Mm -hmm. was you find a master, and then you apprentice under them. And so... I very much have apprenticed under John. I'm still apprenticing under John and uh, all those little ways. You know, he's invited me into his home for, you know, almost 20 years now. And so I, I don't just observe, you know, watching him sit there and type and, oh, what'd you do with this sentence? But I see how he treats his wife. And I've gone to watch him sing in his choir at his Methodist church. And I've worked cattle with him for thousands of hours, you know. And so I've just been able to get this really unique experience that was, you know, way more than editing a manuscript. Mm. Uh, so I'm very, very fortunate that he allowed me into being able to be mentored that way and and just apprentice under him. And so then I tell people all the time, if I if my books win an award or they do something, well, you know, and Jesus said this a long time ago, but uh, a son can only do what he sees the father doing. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, if I do something good, it's really a reflection of the master. Yeah. Whatever the apprentice does, it's because, well, I've been watching the master. I can't get arrogant and say, I did that. Well, I watched for a long time, and the master trickled that down to me. And then you see also in creative circles, well, John wasn't born a genius either. He apprenticed under other people right. as, as well. And so art kind of has this way. It it, it passes itself down. And uh, so, you know, I there's there's no way... If I was just trying to do Wilder Good on my own and, you know, sending manuscripts off to smart editors that I could have done any of what I've done with Wilder Good. So who were John's mentors, masters? He he had several. Maybe he, his two main ones probably were El, Elmer Kelton, who was a San, a San Angelo, Texas writer, okay. wrote, wrote books for, I don't know, 50 years. And he mentored John in, in a lot of really specific ways, and I've been able to read a bunch of those letters that are pretty interesting. And another Texas writer, John Graves. Okay. I don't know if you've heard of John Graves, but he's there from Palo Pinto County. And both of those men passed away in the last 10 years, but great great Texas authors who were men of the land and uh, just just really good men. Yeah, I, I like to—I heard this— not too long ago, but like every creative person from you know, like a musician, uh, songwriters, art, you know, art, even artists like painters and whatnot, um, to writers, you have a, a creative family tree. Yeah, absolutely. That everybody, yeah. you know, from a lot of different ancestors trickle into, mm-hmm. quite honestly, like what is Wilder good? Well, it's Wilder comes from a creative family tree that trickles down. So I just, or to follow that little it, rabbit hole it, to see who John's were, and anybody that says different is not being no. honest with you. Uh, that we <clears throat> we all are these empty pots, and we have to get filled. And uh, the, the, there's an old cliche 
that I've heard in kung fu movies, and nobody may else have ever heard this, but I've heard it. And it's they always say this. They say when the when the when the apprentice is ready, the master will appear. Hmm. And I think you know you have to have a master, but you've also got to be willing to have somebody say your writing is like somebody took a cow into the pasture and shot between the eyes. If you're not ready to receive that, you're not ready to to really be successful yet. Because you've got to start at that place where somebody says, who knows, this isn't very good, but you need to keep trying. So so both people have to be ready for that. You have to have the master that has the actual talent and experience to pass it down, but you've got to put yourself in the right place that says, tell me what I'm doing wrong, and uh, I'll listen. I think it shows the eclectic book that is Nathan Dalstrom that we just got a kung fu quote from, <laughs> from a cowboy out in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, not. I was not expecting a kung that, fu quote in the middle of this podcast. That might not have landed. I apologize. <laughs> no, it was perfect. I just, I love the uh, the eclectic book that is. Okay, so um, started writing your first book. When was that? Like really, you're like okay, I'm I'm really gonna do this, and we're gonna. When when I, when I sat down and wrote every morning, you know. John gets up at five o'clock every morning and goes to his office. And so I started getting up at five o'clock, probably, probably 2009. Okay. Probably about, about four years before the first Wilder Good came out where I would write either Wilder Good or I would write some other story. I would, I would just say, I have to practice my craft. You know, I have to be making sentences. And and, and that's how you learn. You fail forward. You know, you don't sit down and say, right. I'm going to write the next great book. Well, nobody does that. you got to write six bad books before you write one kind of decent book. And then you kind of grow into writing something good. But, but you've got to be willing to log all that, you know, all that learning time, all that fail forward time. And so, yeah, I, I was doing that every day for four or five years. Did you know it would be wild or good? Did you already have that name then? Did you know who know. the boy was? I don't know when the Wilder Good name kind of dropped out of the cosmos. Uh, the name Wilder Good uh, is 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 really is my description of Jesus. Uh, I don't tell a whole lot of people that, but wilderness is you know the imprint God gave us. Mm-hmm. You know you know designed by Jesus, by God, and so. The purest way to, to to look at that is this concept of wildness, you know, the deer, these mesquite trees, the wind, the breeze, these clouds. That's that's as pure of a filter from God as we could possibly get, and that's wild. Now there can be a bad wild, where you know when you're in college you're an idiot, you're right. wild, and that's obviously reckless, and that's more of an idea of chaos. You know, chaos is is satanic. There's no order, but certainly in wild nature there's a very defined order to it. Now, it all looks different. It's not patterned the way men make things, but it, it's very wild, but it's always good. Mm-hmm. It's never wild bad. And so uh, Jesus can turn into this pasty, nice guy on Sunday morning with really soft hands, and uh, that's not who Jesus was at all. Uh, he was a wild good, and so that was kind of... <laughs> It, 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 that's not a secret, but, you know, I think obviously Jesus is the ultimate man and the idea of, of a, that wildness that was that is always good, though, uh, is, you know, I guess who what we're all shooting for. I love that. I, yeah, I think the name is probably one of the most clever things that I've heard in 
especially in literature, just because there is, I mean, you could take it a thousand different ways. Yeah. Because there is, to me, and this is Jonathan's interpretation as, as Archer began to read your books. Um, um, and if you, if you, you've listened to a couple of the podcasts, the one yeah. the where it says, uh, it's going to get awkward. Meow. Yeah. Meow. That's Archer. Yeah. The okay. Intro there. Um, just for reference, because Archer really wanted to be here and meet you and sit at the table with you as we did this. Anyway, um, as you, from Jonathan's interpretation, there is a wilder good because we always think good is safe and it's okay, this yes. in a box deal. Mm-hmm. But for me, I was like, there is, there's a wilder mm-hmm. good that we don't pursue. Yeah. And I, I love the thought, you know, if, if we serve a all creative God that could do anything and has done everything in a breath, he created the universe that's still expanding and scientists try to understand that and you can't because it came with the spoken Mm -hmm. word right he could have made a city yeah and he could have created a nice little town and community that had some indoor plumbing and all that but he didn't he put him in a garden Mm -hmm. out in in a wilderness right to manage this thing and i love that because that's truly if if anybody can just get out nature and just disconnect you find more of yourself in that yeah. than you do sitting in a, you know, and so I love that's it. I, I that, love that. That's where Jesus went, you know, time and time where, again. Where did he go? That's he right. He said, I need, I need solitude. Yep. <clears throat> I need I, to steal away. I need the lake. I need the mountainside. I, and so when we, the, the further we get disconnected from that is, uh, is scary for humanity. And so, you know, that's why the Wilder Good Books, like I'm selling. I'm selling something. I, I do make some money on that, but I do feel like it's a little bit of of preaching the gospel in that sense. Because you know, today's kid, to be cool, you've got to have all the newest TikTok videos and the newest video games, and seen all the newest movies, and so they're just sitting there ready to churn out constant entertainment, constant entertainment. Of course, embedded with all types of messages that aren't what most people want their kids to be seeing, and if that's all we have to look forward to is the next 15 Marvel movies, uh, then, man, uh, we got some sad lives, and who knows where humanity's going to end up. But if we've got kids, and I get to go in front of kids and tell them that, say, hey, hey, I'm an adult that doesn't care about the newest iPhone, that doesn't play video games, that doesn't care about the newest Marvel movie, but I went fishing last weekend, and maybe you should think about getting a new fishing pole. And when your granddad says, let's go feed the cows or let's go hunting or let's go, you know, build a kite or fly or shoot off a rocket, go do all those things. You know, uh, I, I, I feel pretty good about that, uh, that I'm not just selling another little piece of entertainment, but I'm giving maybe a lifestyle choice to be opened up here in 2023 that not many people are talking about. Yep. The, the be wild and read a good book is, that's a good, that's a good slogan. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's what I was taught. It's you know, it's it's worked for me. You know, one of the best things you can ask people is, "What do you do with your kids?" People give you all kinds of advice. You know, the world will tell you all kinds of things you should be doing, but what do you do with your kids? That's kind of where the rubber meets the road. And I mean, that's what I relied on with my kids, and that's the way my folks raised me, and I'm very thankful for that. And uh, nobody's sitting there laughing, saying you wasted your time spending time with your son sitting in the deer blind, you know, I've never felt that. 
maybe it's coming. Maybe it's all been a waste. But uh, so I, your your kids are held. Yeah. Well, my kids are eighteen, fifteen, and twelve. Eighteen, fifteen, twelve, and the eighteen-year-old just finished freshman year of school. freshman year of school. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, that, have they read all Dad's books? Well, yeah. <laughs> The, the the first people that have to pass muster on the books are them. Yeah. So in the summer when I write the books, I'm in the office from morning till usually noon. You, my office isn't air conditioned, so I know to get out when my fingers stick to the keyboard too much because they're sweaty. So I type till my fingers are sweaty. But then I come out every single day and read them what I wrote that day. Oh, wow. So a thousand words or something. So they've heard all the books like before they've been edited or, you know, just in the very... The raw form. The, the raw form. And I love so, that. Uh, maybe that's not a good plan because sometimes, you know, feedback can actually be bad. But I think I, I've got to write books that, that my kids are proud of. You can be tempted when you're sitting there in your office to stick things in that uh, you don't want your mom to read. Uh, and I'm not saying you can't write some things that are deal with adult issues, but... I want to be careful that I'm writing things that at least my family approves of first. Yeah. And so, so they've all read them after the fact, but they all read them when they were just during the, it too. Yeah, the straight unvarnished piece, and of course they yell at me and say, "You can't do that! You can't do that!" And and I and I listen to them. So that's so good. That's that's who I write for. Uh, I write for them first, and then if somebody else reads them, I'm really thankful. And I'm so just in that afternoon of getting to know you, I really want to picture Nathan Dahlstrom typing on an old typewriter in his office with no AC. So that's what your fingers are sticking to, but that's probably not true. Well, I want it to be as old school as possible. You're as you're very insightful because I'm that much of a egghead that I bought a replica of Ernest Hemingway's old typewriter. Did you really? Which is like on eBay, you can buy that for a couple hundred bucks. But here's the problem. They work terrible. So so I gave up on that, and I type on a MacBook just like you. And, and I hang my head in shame. That was always my But vision. is it still just sitting there, though? Do it's you? in there in okay. my office, yeah. It's okay, in my office. It, well, okay. my son comes in, and he types on it because it's a novel blast. You know, it doesn't run out of uh, – you haven't got to plug it in. There's yeah. no, no battery power, obviously. But, you know, and there are a lot of writers. Larry McMurtry, he always wrote right. on a Hunt and Peck. Uh, old typewriter and stuff. So, yeah, I've had that romantic notion, but uh, Mark Twain said few people can afford their morals, and so it wasn't a moral I could really maintain. But I did it. You're right. You did try for a little bit. Uh, am I that obvious? Well, I mean, I'm just I'm just shooting you straight, man. I mean, it is. I, I it's like the eclectic side to the romanticism side, and you nailed I'm me. Like, man, he's he's got to be in there just sweating and you nailed me, stinking and typing on his <laughs> typewriter. You nailed me. <laughs> okay, me. so um, how many books so far? There's seven out, and the eighth one is done, and it should be out the next oh two or three months. So it's all it's all done. I was talking to my illustrator today, and he's finished up the illustration, and the cover guys almost got those all done. And he's, of course, he's a genius. And then, you know, to write a book, when anything you do in life, it's not just an author, but an author thinks, well, if I could just get my book written, get mm -hmm. a manuscript, oh, if I could just get that done, 
well, you get that done. And then you think, well, if I could just find a publisher, if I could just get this published, my yeah. life would be meaningful. Well, then you find a publisher. And then it's like, well, if it, the book could just come out, I could go sit on my mountaintop. The book comes out. Well, then you got to sell the book. Yeah. You know, and then guess what? You got to write the next book. And so life is, well, whatever goal, you know, I'm, I'm at 47, whatever goal you set for yourself that think you think this is the greatest thing that could ever happen to me, mm. you know, and you put your treasure there. And that's not altogether bad. God gave us desire. Right. And, and, and he wants us to be useful. Men, we are not at our best on vacation. We're best at vocation. But uh, you're never done. You know, you're only done when your heart starts beating, stops beating. And so, you know, you write a book and then you write the next one and then you got to sell that book. And, uh, and so when you publish a book, there's a whole lot of people that come together. You know, I've got a wonderful publisher that have become just great friends in Philadelphia and they do so much and they've been so good to me. And, you know, all the other people that work on a book make it happen. And so only one guy's name goes on the cover and it seems like, well, this guy did this book and, on some level, maybe it started with that with that person, but there's all these other people that made it happen. And any real success in life, I mean, you see that Whetstone Boys Ranch, you know, that might have been the very first initial vision came to Nathan Dahlstrom. But, I mean, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have made that place a success. Right. Uh, and uh, it just makes you very, very thankful and... and uh, very humble, you know, nobody accomplishes anything meaningful on their own. You know, it's always this group effort that comes together and says, well, you did some good things, but you can't do it all. And so I'm going to have to help you out here. And so, uh, it's fun when it happens, but it's, it's credit to a lot of people. And just a lot of behind the scenes, hard work. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Archer would probably tell the illustrator, just more pictures, please. More, more, more 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 pictures. pictures. I I was at the school this morning and a kid told me that. He said, why aren't there more pictures? And I said, well. That was Archer's first thing when he, you know, you graciously gave him a little gift set. And he opened the first one. He was like, wait, this one doesn't have as many pictures as the first one we read. <laughs> yeah. What I told the kid this morning is, and of course this is all for different ages, but the magic of a book is is really embracing this 13 pounds up here. Yeah. Is, is your brain, when you sit there watching a movie or playing a video game, you're bringing nothing to the table. You know, it's a completely passive experience. Yeah. And I'm not saying humans don't deserve to be entertained every now and then. It's fun to bring nothing to an experience and not use your brain and watch a film. Or, uh, but with this crazy thing called language, we make these tiny little black and white marks on a page. And somehow, if the writer's doing his job, it becomes this magical thing by this gray matter up here. And who understands that? Nobody understands that. But that's God's gift to humanity. You know, uh, birds can't do that. Deer can't do that. But this, this imaginative capacity we have, this, uh, this gift from the Father of creativity, it's, you know, it's, it's what he gave to man. And, and a book allows you to walk into that. Yeah. I don't know how it works. But it does, and people <clears throat> have been figuring out how to do it for thousands of years. Yeah. And I will say for yeah anybody that listens to this and you, and you want great books for your kids, the Wilder Good series is amazing because I, I loved um, a couple of times I got to watch Archer reading it on the couch and you and you see the cringe happening because 
he's reading and and picturing because he's seen a lot of what happens in that book firsthand. Yeah. And so it can take him back to a true frame of reference and like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. That was kind of kind of grossed me out a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's also the way. You know, I I won't uh, torture you torture you with my poetry, but I, I I love poetry and nobody cares. I understand that. Is there a Dahlstrom poetry book coming yeah. out? Well, no, because nobody buys poetry. There's no market. Oh, man. But I will give you some self-published garbage. Do it. But I say all that to say I have a poem that's called Video of Jesus. And so God, perfect foreknowledge, predestination, free will, that whole problem. He could have had Jesus come to earth in the age of Twitter where we could video him. You know, wouldn't that make sense? Hmm. This is a poem I've written. Uh, wouldn't that make a lot of sense if we could like see the miracles happen? Wouldn't everybody believe? Like if, if we could have videotaped like CNN, uh, Fox News, MSNBC, Twitter, Facebook, everybody see Jesus heal a paralytic or turn loaves into fishes or get ascended into heaven. If everybody could have seen that on video I mean, wouldn't that have done the job? Wouldn't that have converted everybody? Why didn't God just wait 2,000 years till that technology showed up? I don't know. But I think the answer has something to do with, uh, obviously, sight. You know, Jesus talked about many times, sight doesn't produce real faith. But, uh, but the Word, the Word has come down to us. These little bitty, silly little marks. Mm. Aramaic to Greek to Latin to English. And it's come down to us, and it keeps producing faith. We keep reading that text, and it keeps doing something in our brain. I don't understand it. But we didn't get a bunch of pictures of Jesus. We didn't get video of Jesus. And, of course, we just got oral tradition first, right? We didn't right. have the text. Even written then. We didn't have the text for 400 years, and then we really didn't have it until 1500. And then, and then all of a sudden, people just keep believing. I mean, that's a pretty, I don't know, it's a pretty convincing thing to me. That that something that powerful can happen without the eyes, without that overpowering visual stimulation, just those little words on a page. It's a powerful gift. Since now that we know that there's some poetry out there, do you do you have other desires outside of Wilder Good? Uh, I love poetry. I write poetry every day. You know, poetry is just a language that developed for me. Uh, it's a way I record my kids' life. It's a way I record, you know, nature. I take notes in, in poetry. Most of it is probably terrible. Uh, but I feel like it's a good practice, too, because poetry is kind of like push-ups for a novelist mm. in some ways. A novelist, you get this long form, and you can do whatever you want over 250 pages. But, you know, with poetry, you've got to be really precise. And so it kind of is like shooting free throws. It helps me stay in practice. But I, I, I love it as a form as well. Other things, but I, there's not really a market for poetry. If somebody wanted to pay me to put out a, one of my poetry books, I would certainly let them. But, you know, it's it's nobody, even the Pulitzer Prize winners have a hard time selling mm. A thousand books. It's just not something people buy anymore. That being said, there's other things I would like to write. Uh, so uh, I've got some other manuscripts out there. I, I love Wilder Good, and you know, everybody in entertainment or in writing, they usually find one thing that 
that that people like, and so they write that. But they've always got other interests and things that probably nobody likes or is profitable, and so uh, those may never come to light, and that's fine. But yeah, I have other things I want to write. Uh, but it's only so many hours in the day. That's true. Yeah, you got other still have a family to raise and all that. So, what was your what's your goal on Wilder Good? I mean, book count. Oh, book count, you know, it's hard to think about a goal uh, because it can all end tomorrow. You you know, I mean, your publisher can say, yeah, we don't want to do these anymore, and that's that's it. Uh, Now you could obviously find another publisher, hopefully, but it's a a world that has to to be accountable to the free market, you know, and so it's only as good as you can market it, and people will pick them up. And so, you know, I'm— Everyone that comes out on some level in my mind, I think, wow, I published another one. That's great. <laughs> and so now it's been eight, you know. Uh, so I'm, You kind of stay surprised at every— Yeah, I'm surprised, and I'm I'm happy, you know. Uh, my mentor, John Erickson, he's got 76 Hank the Cow Dogs, which I think— and I, and I think this is true. I think that's the longest-running series ever non-ghost-written. Most things like Hardy Boys or Boxcar Children that go yeah. into the hundreds, most all of those have been ghostwritten past, you know, the first 10, 15 books. And other people come in and they continue the, the line. But John has written all of his, and I think it's the longest one ever. Uh, so I'm not shooting for 76 because that would be a long time. But uh, How old is John? 77 or 8. Okay. He's been working hard a long time. So he's been cranking multiple books out a year then. Yeah, yeah. He, there, there, there's two Hanks every year. And uh, he he just, he has a has a life that he's arranged to to maximize what he can do. And so he, he still runs a ranch and uh, writes every day. And uh, he, the metaphor he uses is, he, he, some people say, well, has your life been glamorous? And he says, no, it's more like a mule pulling a plow. And so he goes out and he pulls his plow every single day and he makes families happy and smile and laugh and provides nourishing, innocent laughter. And so uh, that's a pretty good gift to the world. So so who knows how many I'll do. So what mm, – it's two or three different ways on it. So, all right, when – when um, so I listened to the um, – they did the podcast, the the narration. Matthew McConaughey did the yeah. the narration there. Do you have any desire to like have Wilder in? Has anybody approached you about that? Like taking Wilder into a a different form, different of medium. Yep. Medium. Uh, every author who ever lived in the last hundred years is waiting for the movie <laughs> people to call. Uh, and it's not because. It, <laughs> It, it, it it's not because they want to see their book in a movie necessarily, but it's because that gives them a different level of financial return that lets them write more books. Uh, most times when you sell the, sell those movie rights, you lose creative control. Right. And so, and there's a reason for that. The movie people are good at making movies uh, because you're a writer doesn't mean you know how to write a screenplay, much less deal with the light and hire actors and all those different kind of things. Uh, but it's really good for selling books. And and so everybody wants that to happen. Uh, I've had some talks with wilder good people or with, with people that are thinking about 
making some form of media with Wilder Good. And so we have some of those talks going on. And so that may happen. It may not. Uh, John has dealt with Hollywood for a long, long, long time. Oh, yeah. Disney wanted to buy the Hank all kit and caboodle back in 1986. And their contract was, uh, was was a terrible contract, and so he said no, which is a crazy thing because Hank was self-published at that point. He was just self-publishing these books out of his garage, and Disney approaches him, and he ended up telling him no. And so uh, it's a long, long path, generally from a book to a movie. But I would love for that to happen. Uh, you've got to have movie people that you trust. You know, I've learned that from John a long time ago. Uh, the movie people are good at making movies and making look thing, make things look beautiful, but they have their own agendas. Oh, for sure. And when somebody shows up with $30, $40 million, they've got people that have expectations for that $30, $40 million, and that's probably not your West Texas expectations. Mm-hmm. And so there's just a lot of things that get into the weeds on the details of that. And and again, I've read that in many stories, and of course, John's mentored me of that in a lot of ways. So. It's a it's a good thing you want to happen, and I would love to continue to have those conversations. And if somebody could make a beautiful Where the Red Fern Grows, My Side of the Mountain, yeah. Secondhand Lions, yeah. uh, if somebody come along and make that quality of something that's not full of worldview, that was contrary to the heart of the Walter Good books, oh man, I would I would I would jump for joy. But uh, that's kind of like a unicorn, and unicorns do happen occasionally. So, who knows? And I even think about, well, I mean, just, you know, the little, um, the podcast series that McConaughey did with Hank the Cowdog. I don't yeah. know how that all, you know, the workings behind that, but even that kind of mm-hmm. situation where there was a voice put to Wilder and, yeah. you know, and all the different yeah. characters involved in that, you know. Yeah. It would be really fun. And, 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 and that McConaughey piece is, is really good. Of course, there's lots of stories behind all that. Oh, I'm sure. Getting to those places. But, yeah, that was, that was really nice. And uh, I think it, you know, that's what star power, that's what sure people who've been doing that for a long time, they can reach people so much faster than what m- most of the book machinery can. And so that becomes appetizing. But then you've also got to pay for that with with other ways yep and uh you you never know if you know your passion project is worth changing the worldview and the ethos of it is it worth that big Mm. check so it's a good problem to have well and it's i picture it as like it is your baby and there's a lot of people handling your baby yeah and that's not always a (laughs) that's not always a good thing it's a it it would be a it it's a long journey. Uh, the the best thing to do is, you know, and I'm not here to run down Larry McMurtry, but you know he's our he's our probably best known Texas guy. The best thing to do is write stuff that's not really values based, and mm-hmm. and so McMurtry, what he was able to do very young is write things that were actually very negative about all of West Texas mm-hmm. and his culture, and so what did Hollywood latched onto that and there were you know no problems do whatever you want because that's what it was and so that's a that's a pretty good marriage right off the bat Mm. if you have a have a different set of values uh attached to your work then uh it's not as easy to make that marriage work yeah 
that's probably why there's not a lot of Louis Moore books made into movies. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well from that from that ideology, right? At least not anymore. But you know, Louis Louis the Moore, I, I think there, there's a handful of those movies out there, but Lou Moore never would write the sex scenes. Right. He would never put in. It's definitely not any current all anything. The, all the big in. cussing. He was yeah. writing about, you know, masculinity and femininity and yeah. toughness and the beauty of nature. He wasn't putting in all the things. Now, he killed a lot of people, but he didn't do it. In, it wasn't a gratuitous. Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. There, there, there was no gratuity to Lou Moore's work, and so yeah. he sold millions and millions and millions of copies, but it, it wasn't a form that really— really works with Hollywood that well. I mean, of course, the Western as a whole, you know, has, right. has, has gone down since, you know, the 60s, 70s. There, the, you know, there's still some good Westerns written, obviously, and there's some still being filmed, but it's it's not in vogue right now. So per the chance there is a young writer listening right now, what what is your, you know, you, you're long in the tooth in this now. You may not think you're <laughs> that way, but... A little bit. What what advice do you give somebody starting out writing and wanting to go down that that path? The the first thing is you have to be a great reader. You know, you have to read all the time. Uh, one of the rules for poetry is you can tell when somebody's writing poetry they haven't read much poetry because so many things have been done mm-hmm. and so many errors get repeated over and over and over again. You know, there are very few people are novel. Uh, and so you've just got to read a lot to know what's out there and that, you know, it's just like playing music. You have to train your ear to, well, does that even sound right or does it not sound right? You can figure the notes out all day long, but if it doesn't sound right, it's not going to work. And so prose is the same way. You have to read a lot, become an expert in the genre that you want to write in, figure out who, who your audience is, who you want to write to, and then be an absolute expert in that genre. Just read all the time. And then, you know, the only other piece is you got to treat it like a job. You know, you got to treat it like a job that you don't get paid for. You got to find a place at a certain time and do it every day. Mm. And it may only be 30 minutes or it may be I'm going to write 500 words every day. And you may just be journaling about your kids or you may be writing just a really goofy story about a lizard that lives in a mesquite tree that's being chased by a golden fronted woodpecker. Uh, But you've got to take it serious and the people that say, I'm going to get a condo on the beach in Mexico and go there for two weeks and write my novel, you know, they're not going to write anything. Yeah. Because if you wanted to do it, you'd be doing it in your basement at five o'clock this morning and not doing all the other things that you don't really need to be doing. So, you know, find a place, start writing and uh, do it every day. And eventually, you know, that recipe works for everything. Mm. Uh, if you want a cowboy, if you want to, uh, build tables, if you want to be a plumber, if you want to shoot a hundred percent from the three point line, you got to get out there and start, start doing it. And eventually you're going to get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And I also hear you say, try to find a master too. Well, if you can, that's not always the. Not everybody can do that. Yeah. If you can find somebody. You find that master. But, you know, to go back to the Kung Fu quote, I've found that successful people are dying to pass on their wisdom Mm. to the right attitude. You find a successful person, uh, they know what it took to become successful. They know the attitude and the hard work. And if you find them and you express like, hey, I'm willing to work the way you worked 30 years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I've never found one of those people that wasn't willing to open up the floodgates and say, I'll share everything I have with you. Uh, now, if you come to them pretentious and wanting to be praised like I first did, then that's not going <laughs> to work. Just tell no. them I'm a writer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you come to them, then they're going to say, oh, you're the kid I've been looking for. Mm. You're the kid I want to pass this on to. Uh, and so that attitude is right. They want to help you. That's always been my experience. And that's the same way with me. You said I was long in the tooth. And, you know, I've just been doing this for about, I've been publishing for 10 years, I guess. But I have people talk to me all the time. And, of course, I teach creative writing. And when you when I see a kid and they have that attitude, you know, then there's nothing I won't give them. I make time for them. I email them back. I have conversations with them. I meet them for lunch. And uh, when they have that right attitude, I want to pass it on. Because... It was given to me. Right. What, what what kind of person is it that is given something and then they won't pass it on? Well, that's not someone who's going to become successful. But you get given something, you think, wow, there's no way I can hold on to this. I've got to keep my hand open mm-hmm. and pass it on to the next guy. And so uh, those are the two things. That's really good. I appreciate this a whole lot. It was fun. I know we can go up thousand other directions too and talk about a whole lot other things but I, I definitely wanted to touch on wilder good and and journey getting there and um book eight comes out tell me that one more time well on amazon right now it says december 3rd but i i think it'll all be wrapped up and i think they'll push that date back that's all in the publisher's hands they make those decisions but i i would think it'll be out by august september but it's, I mean, it's on Amazon now. Yeah. You can look it up and see it. Yeah. So we'll, I'll put all those details in the, in the notes of the episode and all that stuff. So people can check out Wilder Goods website and all the things that I know you love keeping up with all the technology. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> the that, Facebook page and all the, well, that's right that's, up Nathan's alley. Bro. That's he something just, I always refuse to do. But if there is my daughter who's, studying marketing in college at, at Christmas. She said, How convenient. She That's said, awesome. Dad, we need to have a Facebook page and an Instagram. And I said, if you want to do it, you can do it as part of your education. But I'm not going to do any of it. And so I realized that's stupid. And those things can just, they're just marketing. And you need those things. But I, I guess I've been a stick in the mud about some of that. And I... I I just give you codger points for that. That's just, yeah. that's too... Two or three codger points for that call. I went to a, <laughs> I went to a lady's speech one time about seven or eight years ago, and her whole speech was about unplugging and getting back to the world and investing in your relationships and whatnot. She gave a pretty good speech, and then she had a book to sell. And the last thing she said was, "Everybody follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook." <laughs> and I said, "I was like, lady." You just gave us a speech about how evil all this is and get off it. And, and now, <laughs> you know, your ethos just defeated everything you just said. And so, you know, somebody can call me a hypocrite because there technically is a Wilder Good and Instagram out there. But anyway. But your daughter did it. She did it. I so. did it. And I did notice that it was pretty recent. That is not a, <laughs> it is not a, it's not very, it's not an old account. It's not very well formed. But I, okay, I'll say one more thing on that. You, if you maybe want to want to kill this, 
you, you go to writers things and get writers magazines and, and you go to writers conferences and there's about 70% of it is about marketing. Like there's some kind of trick. Mm. If you find the right button on Facebook or Instagram, you're going to be successful if you do this or that. And my, my premise has always been, I want to spend 95% of my time honing my craft. Yeah. If my craft is good enough and when I meet people, when I do face-to-face things, if I take care of those people, love those people, one at a time, that, that my craft will take care of me. Uh, there's no tricks out there. Now, if you're you know, doing things like some of the YouTubers do and just do absurd things, well, there is some money, I do understand, connected to doing absurd things for video. But for the most part, people that aren't willing to do absurd things on video, if you take care of your craft, your craft will speak for itself. Yep. Stradivarius is still selling violins. Yep. He's been dead for 400 years because his craft was way better than everybody else's. Uh, people were selling books and, and selling good widgets way before there was social media because they were taking care of customers and they were making great products. John Erickson sold 10 million Hank the Cow Dogs before there was social media. And so, uh, you know, I spoke to an elementary this morning. I talked to every single kid. I looked every kid in the eye. I treated them like human beings, not like my audience that I disdained. Yeah. Uh, I'm willing to bet on that investment of time this morning two hours with elementary kids than if I had spent two hours brushing up my Facebook page. So then you told them to follow you on Facebook. Then I told them, everybody go follow me on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and everything else. Don't forget that. The wilder good TikTok. Yeah. Did not come out of your mouth. Did not come out of your mouth. This has been fun, man. I've enjoyed our afternoon. I enjoyed lunch and just getting to know you more and sitting on the porch and feeling like, uh, yeah, I'm I'm little Jonathan Williams back at 509 County Road, whatever, in Magnolia Springs, Texas, when yeah. I was five years old. On the we we could turn this into a mesquite grilled ribeye and pig hunt. We could and overnight, real real easy, real quick. And I love the signs everywhere. I don't know who all's idea that was, but that's from Gus. All the Gus was a sign maker, so I had to. Oh, that's true. So yeah. the OG yeah. helped influence that but yeah i love it so thank you nathan i appreciate you're welcome. it thank you for having me this has been awesome and um blessings to everything that you're doing and and definitely for wilder good and let's uh let's let's beat hank the cow dog we'll go 78 just <laughs> johnson <laughs> well, he, well that's true he, he may turn out 85 before it's all done yeah and, he's gonna do a lot that's awesome all right man thank you so much okay